This is Songwriter, the podcast that turns stories into songs. My name is Ben Arthur. A content warning. Although this episode does not contain anything that most listeners would consider particularly graphic, it does contend with issues around childhood sexual abuse and self-harm. This episode features a brand new song from the band Self-Help and the return of author Dolan Morgan. Like a lot of Dolan's work, this story is surprising and upsetting, and its meaning can be difficult to pin down. But as you'll hear, it may be that very uncertainty that makes the story so affecting. I'm Dolan Morgan. I'm a writer, usually of short stories. I also do some illustration. And then I also work in schools and help out educators who work with recently arrived immigrant and refugee adolescents. It started off as two different stories. I had a idea for a story about a person who has a replica of themselves that they beat up. <laughs> and then I had an idea for a story where uh, prisons were overflowing and the government passes a law that people have to start housing convicts in their like suburban homes. And then I just had this little epiphany. I was like, what if I try and connect these two? And so that gave me the, the basic surface level architecture of how this story would play out. And then I think, I actually think that it's the same answer I gave the last time I was on, that I'd been watching some Cronenberg and wanted to put some body horror stuff into the story. So this story is also, I think, in a lot of ways, like a sister story to the other one that was on a previous season. The tone in this story is a bit more grim. The balance between humor and um, like angst is a little, tipped a little bit more toward the teenage uh, main character's angstiness in this story. Something that I was trying to process in this story is sort of the intersection of trauma and agency and like conflicted feelings of our participation in difficult things that happen in our lives and like how that on a surface level I think you know I wanted it to be open-ended enough that anyone who's remembering adolescence could see like oh yeah you know going through puberty you know being in middle school like that was hard you know and like trying to figure out who I was was hard but that it also has an element of uh, for folks who have experience with trauma especially when they were young and who have experienced the conflicted feelings that can go with that would see that represented in the in the work this is dolan morgan with an excerpt from his story the quartering act uh we're starting in the middle and the only things you need to know are the narrator is a 14 year old boy who's pretty dissatisfied with his high school experience so far the quartering act is a new law in response to overcrowded prisons and now every home in the united states has to house a convict in a spare bedroom or attic. Jerry is the convict now living at home with the narrator and his parents. The narrator's baby brother, Aaron, passed away and Jerry lives in his former room. Living with Jerry is kind of pleasant and boring um, and he's become a bit of a surrogate child for the parents, which has been good for them in the narrator's opinion. And all seems great uh, until our narrator hears violent banging and whimpering coming from Jerry's room upstairs. And that's where we'll pick up the story.
I heard it again on a Thursday afternoon, just a few weeks later. I'd come home early, not feeling well, skipping my usual after-school club. I thought I might use the quiet time in the late afternoon and early evening to brainstorm about what simple surprise my dad would most appreciate, but I wasn't in the door more than a few minutes when I heard the first crack. A sound somehow both wet and brittle, like something snapping inside a piece of meat. I nearly dropped my glass of water. Then came a steady parade of blunt concussions and pained whimpers, all emanating again from upstairs, unmistakably Jerry's room. I made my way toward the second floor. The intensity of my purpose brought into focus details of the house that I normally failed to register. The worn edges of the wooden steps threatening to make me lose traction and tumble loudly to my knees. The creaking boards underfoot that now seemed deafeningly loud and sure to give me away. The framed photos of my family which suddenly appeared precariously placed, dangling upon rickety hooks and nails, ready to careen downward in the crashing tumult, etc. As I crested the landing, barely allowing myself to breathe, I thought how apt it was that, in all of our photos, my mom, dad, and I were never once caught looking at one another. Stepping closer to Jerry's room, the sound became unmistakable. Someone was being hurt, and badly. I could see that his door was slightly ajar, and I moved toward it, careful not to broadcast my presence. Figurines on a hallway end table rocked with the force of each distant impact. The pounding intensified, as did the whimpering. I'd recently read the scarlet letter for class and thought I might find Jerry alone, lashing himself in some kind of misguided penance. This theory proved to be simultaneously 100% wrong and quite accurate. That is... When I peeked through the open door, here's what I saw. Jerry raising and dropping his fist on a body on the floor, a body that was absolutely separate from his own, but which also appeared to be him, or something exactly like him, or not exactly. The body was more an approximation, like a fuzzy picture just coming into focus, but still unmistakably Jerry. The beard, the lines around his eyes, the bald spot, faded tattoos, the body lay on its back entirely naked with real Jerry leaning over, fists hammering down. I watched as Jerry punched at the ribs and kidneys of this body, then slapped it about the face. The body clearly did not appreciate these circumstances, but did not make a move to stop it either. Occasionally, it made to protect its face with tired hands, but only half-heartedly or perhaps reflexively. I watched in awe, unsure of what to do. If Jerry had been in a clearer kind of trouble, attack by some stranger, I might have mustered the courage to bust into the room in his defense, or if Jerry had been the obvious perpetrator, hurting not himself, but instead some poor victim lured who knows how to our house, then I might have had the wherewithal to intervene or at least call Officer Rick, but the situation before me presented such an uncanny valley of violence that I was frozen in confusion. Before I could reach any sort of decision in my mind about what action to take, Jerry unceremoniously halted his beating and slid the weird mirror version of himself into the closet under some blankets and winter coats. I slinked back down the stairs, out of the house, down the street, past the intersection, all the way to the lake. I don't know how long I sat there staring at its great rippling edge. In the coming days, I didn't mention what I'd seen to Jerry or to anyone else. 
What could be said? My parents no doubt would think I was insane, or worse, jealous. Their habit of treating Jerry like some kind of golden child did eclipse the comfort and praise they offered me by a long shot, but I actually wasn't bothered by this fact at all. Like I said, I'd even come to appreciate it as a kind of blessing. As they went about their gift-giving and smiling and wistful gazing, a patina of normalcy began to crust over everything again. School, dinner, silence, convicted felon as dead child surrogate, movie night. I tried to let myself float atop the gentle sea of that routine, but an undercurrent of guilt kept dragging me under. Something had happened to me, something unexplainable. I wanted to tell my mom. I remember watching her gather papers in the morning, and I wanted to say something to her right then and there. Something happened to me, I could say, but something was still happening to me, and in still happening, it was impossible to communicate or share. That is, there was something inside of me now that could not be drawn out, and I sensed that familiar mismatch between interior and exterior worlds that had so defined my first year of high school thus far and would come to define so much of the remainder, but I felt it more acutely and perfectly now than I had ever thought possible. Had this thing really happened? Did I really see what I thought I'd seen? How could I know? Would I believe myself? The world was becoming a collection of symbols and signs that I could not trust my mind to decipher my mother's papers, her hair in disarray, the cut on my father's hand, the smell of alcohol in the car, so many elements on some alien periodic table forming categories, columns, and groups beyond my comprehension, and I began to feel unmoored from any sense of safety. Everything in this world, I felt, was now policed in some way, except for interior lives, and I longed for anything to bring order to this crap inside of me. Instead, I drifted out to sea. I want to say that this disorientation is why I started skipping school more often, but that would not be entirely true. No, I wanted to see Jerry happen to Jerry again. I can admit this. I began regularly slinking back home after my parents had gone to work, then quietly ascending the stairs and watching through a crack in the door as Jerry beat a naked replica of himself. It became a kind of compulsion. I did it every week, and then, once summer vacation arrived, every day. This impulsivity did not help clarify anything and really only exacerbated my guilt. I felt sick. That same summer is also when the Quartering Act riots began. They started as protests, then counter-protests, and finally full-on clashes with police and infrastructure. At the time, I couldn't understand what any of the demonstrators actually wanted, but the spectacle transfixed me anyway. People died. Buildings exploded. I think the Quartering Act became a kind of conduit through which anyone could channel their grievances, however disparate, and come together as one large mass of anger and contempt. What did the country want to say to it? I don't think it knew or could know. I was watching the news on my phone, trying uselessly to read the tea leaves of American politics and entertainment, when Jerry sat down next to me and said, I can show you how to do it. I put down my phone and looked at him. He appeared, more than anything else, quite tired. I didn't say anything. He repeated himself, I can show you how to do it, if you want. I looked at the rug. And so began my lessons. By the beginning of the next school year, I had a second version of me wrapped up in my closet that I could hurt. 
Jerry taught me what to do, how to draw out this true thing from within me and into the world. Jerry didn't understand the physics of it himself, so it would be useless to try and explain the process in any kind of meaningful or practical detail. He told me to think of it as not unlike the quartering act itself, something drawn out from an overcrowded and overtaxed interior to be placed and detained in the new confines of my home. The comparison seemed like a stretch to me, but so did each of the things being compared to be honest, and so maybe it added up. Either way, I can attest that the moment of arrival was at once convoluted, painful, embarrassing, and ultimately liberating. And then there was a new me, naked and quivering, on the floor by my bed. The more important question, of course, was, what should I do with this thing now that I had it? Jerry said that I would know exactly what to do with it when the time arrived. And I did. I knew immediately though I hated to admit that fact. I think it's important to note that I could never knowingly bring myself to hurt someone. I was what you would probably call a wimp. I opened windows for flies and ferried spiders and cups to the safety of the yard. I felt enormous guilt and embarrassment if I ever tarnished another person's feelings, even accidentally, and took great pains to make amends. But myself? Oh, I'd always known I was comfortable hurting myself. In my room, late in the evening, I took a rare break from movie night. Outside, the last dregs of heat and humidity sloshed around the bottom of summer's barrel. I looked at the new me on the floor. Hello? The new me on the floor looked at me. Posters for bands I barely liked anymore hung on the wall. I removed a small exacto blade from my art supply set. A kind of sea or tide moved within my abdomen. I sat down next to myself on the carpet. A wet heat rose up through my chest. I put the blade onto the skin of my other belly. Waves lapped slowly within my stomach. I pushed and moved the metal edge toward my mirror ribs churning. I knew exactly what to do. There is an ocean made especially for each one of us. The other body bled. Miles of open water. We both watched. I sank into it and could feel the doing and the being done to. One of us cried a little and then a lot. Eventually, the blade dulled and then I put myself carefully away in the closet and crawled back to shore. The song written in response. Hi, I'm John, one one quarter of self-help. And I am Melissa, one quarter of self-help. I am a writer, I think, first and foremost, but I'm also a creative writing professor and musician. So I feel like my life is a trifecta of all of those things. Um, I am mostly a, a high school teacher. I would like to lie and say I'm, I'm like a writer and musician first, and then a high school teacher second, but A, that's patently untrue, and B, I think it would make me a crappy teacher. My primary identity is as a teacher because this is sort of what I do. It's like my calling. I don't think anybody needs me to make music. I do think a lot of people need me to teach. I know so many people have made this transition from uh, this is the art I make to this is the art I get paid to make. It's been a very interesting thing to watch. It's been an interesting thing to watch you do. But I also have some really successful musician friends 
And one of the things that I've always felt, but now it's become this like rock hard diamond of feeling, is the idea that the best stuff gets made, not just not for you, but in the absence of caring about what other people think about it. I personally love being a musician, you know, in the amateur sense. I find a lot of freedom in that. Well, that sounds like such uh, sour grapes. I'm really glad to not get paid <laughs> and not be successful or not. It's actually what I want. <laughs> <laughs>
came on and I just like just had it on in the background and then like halfway through some of the lyrics just sort of caught me and I had been listening sort of subconsciously the whole time I just started crying and if you ask me like why those lyrics hit me and what that song frankly is even about don't have a clear answer but I find it arresting and powerful and in some way it shows the world to me. The vulnerability of the writing to really struck me, and that's something that I really appreciate. Um, you know, I, I talk to my students about this all the time. About they're always like, "How do you know? How do we create a voice on the page that someone cares about, or how do we write a believable narrator, whatever that means?" And uh, so often we spend like an entire class period talking about vulnerability, what that what that means, and what that can look like. And I feel like this is a great example of like what writing a, a truly vulnerable character person looks like. And there was a line that he wrote in the story that ended up in the song to see what something sharp on skin can do. Um, and that was a line that like like really popped, not least because of its sort of admission, um, but the lyricism of it. Basically, yeah, so the Third Amendment, you know, is in response to the British quartering their soldiers during the Revolutionary War. And so because I'm a history teacher, my mind immediately went to that when I heard the Quartering Act. And so the lyrical content of the chorus is, you know, don't take the Third Amendment, sort of a reference to taking the Fifth Amendment, meaning don't keep people out, let people in. You know, so it's it's very much an oblique reference to the title of the story, you know, the core content of the story and the core feeling of the story. Doing this for Dolan's story added a lot of weight to the lyrics. It felt like we had to really do justice to the story in the song. And so in this particular case, I uh, put my ego down for once and asked for Melissa's help because it turns out she's a professional writer. <laughs> And so they were kind of our most collaborative lyrics. Yeah, for yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't think I've ever collaborated on lyrics before in in our in all of our songwriting. This process was super special for us because we had not written anything as a band in like several years. We all went far afield. Like we all left Brooklyn. You know, John and I are in Columbus. Our bass player David is in Nashville. Our drummer is still in New York. And so this was a this was a like a kind of renewed sense of creation for us. And um, it was super fun to do this kind of like postal service style. It was a very different process than like being in a, in a space together and working together. And in some ways there are advantages because when you have like a recording of somebody's part and you're working on something, you just kind of loop it. And similarly, there was just sort of this like it was like Christmas, you know, uh -huh. like the, the bridge, like when I sent the bridge, the guitar part it was really basic, just sort of like chords ringing out. And then we got it back from Mike and he had done this incredible Tom thing that just totally changed the dynamic. So then we changed a little bit of what we did on the guitar 
and then David was responding to that. Um, so between that and collaborating on the lyrics and, and also just feeling like the influence of the story, it was it's a really satisfying process. This is the band Self Help with their song, 3A. There's a place in your heart that you keep locked away. As if you ever had a choice, as if we'd look at you the same. Here's a piece of my soul. I should give it to you so you can live a little, just live a little.
was self-help with 3A. Next episode of Songwriter features a story from Kevin Allison and a song written in response by Carolyn Kendrick. Songwriter is 100% independently produced by Hook and Crook. If you want to support the artist and the producer that makes it, please consider a premium subscription via Apple Podcasts or go to songwriterpodcast.com forward slash donate. Kind words on social media or in person are always appreciated as well. You can always get early access to Songwriter at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, check out the Paste podcast or get it wherever you get yours. Finally, thanks as always to Rob Reinhardt and Acoustic Cafe.